Broadcasting from the historic Habern building in downtown Louisville, it's time for Single Payer Radio, a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of the Kentucky chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. We believe a national, publicly funded, nonprofit single payer system is the solution to the current train wreck system that values profit over patients and leaves half of us in medical debt. And we are a longstanding community partner with WFMP 106.5 Forward Radio. The views and opinions expressed on single payer radio are those of the speakers and not the station. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the group. Single payer radio can be heard on WFMP 106.5 on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. If you can't pick up our radio signal in your neighborhood, you can live stream us at forwardradio.org. If you miss a show or want to re-listen, you can do this at forwardradio.org and go to our archives. WFMP is an all-volunteer station. We rely on the community for your ideas and funding. Join us, forwardradio.org. And thanks again to Dr. Barbara Casper and Dustin Pugel for sharing their insights and experiences with the Medicaid program. Now, there are several state legislators in the current majority party who view Medicaid recipients as fraudsters or slackers. For-profit Medicaid entities treat recipients as sources of profit. Under a nonprofit single-payer system, folks are viewed as patients. Everybody in, nobody out, one system. Mike? Yeah, this is uh, Michael Flynn. Let me begin with the usual disclaimer that any comments I make during this program represent my personal views and do not represent the views of the Department of Surgery or the University of Louisville. Any comments that I make uh, represent my own personal views and do not represent the University of Louisville or Taylor Regional Hospital in Campbellsville, Kentucky. And that was Eugene Shively. Uh, our topic today is, is um, going to be an interesting one and a little different from some of the previous programs. We're going to talk about issues of basic research and how a burn research project resulted in the development of a skincare product, and then how a basic research transitioned into a successful business. Now, L has encouraged this type of research and entrepreneurial collaboration, and uh, I think Gene's going to make a comment about that a little bit later on. So our guest today is Greg Brown, and he is an example of those things I just mentioned. He was a plastic surgeon. Uh, he did, got his medical degree from uh, UofL, uh, did a general surgery residency at Mass General in Boston and at UofL. He was a, a surgical, price surgical research fellow, uh, did a plastic surgery fellowship at Emory University, and was on the UofL faculty and in private practice for many years. 
and established the Brown uh, Bayes Brown Laboratories in 1997. Uh, Greg, welcome. Thank you for uh, coming on, and we really look forward to hearing uh, hearing the story. Uh, if there's anything that I've said isn't correct, uh, please uh, uh, straighten me out. And we're as we do with our, our, our other guests, we're going to give you an opportunity to make whatever comments you'd like to make for as long as you'd like to make them. And uh, when you're done, the conversation will begin uh, and the floor is yours. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Gene. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here and such a worthy cause you all uh, put forward. And you're right, it is a little different. I've listened to some of your past uh, recordings and this is a bit unique, but I think it's important because especially for young people, it can, um, you know, show how basic research, which sometimes seems, um, you know, sort of um, with no practical application can ultimately end up being um, at least financially rewarding. And so, you know, I did, I trained um, in general surgery. I finished in the University of Louisville uh, in the early eighties. And then I decided to take a couple of years off and do basic research with Hiram Polk, who at that time was chairman of surgery. And he was nice enough to give me pretty much uh, independence to pursue what I wanted to. And I, having been a general surgeon and taken care of a lot of burn patients, and I knew I was gonna become a plastic surgeon, I was very interested in burns and wound healing and that sort of thing. And so it just so happened that at the university, there was a young biochemist uh, named Greg Schultz, who had just done a postdoc with a man in San Francisco, the University of California, San Francisco. And we started a collaboration with them. And this was about the time in the Bay Area, in San Francisco, biotech companies were in their infancy. Genentech was just getting started. Amgen was just getting started. And the one that I became affiliated with, that the person that we did most of the research with was uh, Dr. William Rudder. He had started a company called Chiron. And just to sort of refresh your memory, biotechnology is the, the way to synthetically make human proteins. Uh, for example, insulin was one of the first ones commercially made. Prior to that time, insulin was derived from either cow or pig insulin, and there, there were problems with all that. So once biotechnology and recombinant DNA came along, it was possible to make human uh, insulin biosynthetically. Well, Dr. Rudder was interested in a compound called epidermal growth factor. Growth factors are hormones that sort of keep the body level in homeostasis. They um, bring about cell renewal. They tend to decrease with age. And this specific one, epidermal growth factor, had actually been discovered many years earlier in 1960 by Stanley Cohen and Rita Montalcini, but very little research had been done with it because it, they occur in such small quantities in the body, it was almost impossible to do clinical or animal research. But once biotechnology came along, unlimited quantities were available to do research and uh, things started to happen. We just happened to be at the right place at the right time, really. Um, it was just pure serendipity at the birth of biotechnology. So we worked with them for a couple of years to do a lot of experiments. And we were able to show, at least in animal models, that we could increase um, healing. And that was an important concept. I was also very involved at that time 
in what was the burn unit at the University of Louisville, I was able to actually, uh, the pink ladies, if you don't know who they are, they're the volunteers that wear pink suits in the hospital. I was able to get a grant from them for $25,000, which still a lot of money, but then it was a lot more money than it is now. And we were able to start a skin bank for that. And a skin bank is a way to keep cadaver skin, which serves as a good uh, temporary covering for burns before the permanent skin grafts can be applied. We were able to start growing skin. Growing skin uh, is dependent upon growth factors to get confluency. So there was a lot of research um, going on. And so we continued to do that. Fast forward a little bit, I became a plastic surgery resident at Emory. Emory is a great place uh, in the sense uh, it encourages young surgeons to do investigative things. And so there's a big inner city hospital called Grady and has a big burn unit. So I was able to actually um, arrange to do clinical studies on patients. Um, we got uh, IRB approval, institutional review board approval at Emory and at Vanderbilt. It was a joint study. And we were able to show if we would apply these growth factors to burns, we could actually make them heal faster. And that was somewhat of a landmark article it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And it was an important, um, really important in the sense that theoretically it was important, but also uh, the reason people usually or patients don't survive a burn injury, their wounds don't get uh, closed or healed quickly enough and they get sepsis or infection and succumb to their injuries. So anything that could possibly decrease the time of um, healing and getting the wounds closed was important. So that was and it's still part of burn wound therapy today. Growth factors are used in a lot of different wounds. Um, and then I came back to the university as a faculty member, you know, sort of low man on the totem pole. I don't, I think my title was instructor or assistant professor or something like that. And as you know, if in an academic uh, setting, it's important to do research. So I continued to be very interested in these um, growth factors. And I had the idea that maybe growth factors when applied to intact skin could actually reverse or stabilize the signs of aging. Because by then I was a plastic surgeon, aesthetics were important obviously, but certainly not all that plastic surgery is about, but an aspect of plastic surgery. So I did a whole series on human volunteers, prospective randomized study, um, and sure enough, we're able to show when growth factors were added to skin care over a 60-day period, we could increase cell turnover. And the reason that's important, you know, to heal a burn wound and to reverse and stabilize the signs of aging, physiologically, actually, those things are quite similar in the sense increased cell renewal has to take place. So, you know, when you're um, 20 years old, your skin completely replaces itself about every three weeks. Cells divide, they percolate to the surface and they're exfoliated. When you're my age, which is a lot older than 20, uh, it may take 12 or 14 weeks. And one of the reasons we get that dull, dull lackluster uh, skin as we age is cells are not turning over so quickly. Even though growth, epidermal growth factor is a big molecule, we were still able to show that we could stimulate cell turnover. And interestingly, 
the older the individual, the bigger the effect, which is what you would expect. So I actually patented that idea of growth factors as a way to reverse skin aging. And by then I had a fledgling young practice. And uh, in those days, people didn't advertise so much. And probably if I were practicing today, I, would I wouldn't advertise anyway. But as a way to sort of um, market my young practice, I made a what was a makeshift form of what ultimately became the product that I make. And we, we named it Revive. It's, it's spelled like Revive. You know, I, I like French words, so it's a play on words, but Revive. But it was basically what ultimately became Revive. I, my mother used a product called, it's an old product. I think it's still available. Elizabeth Arden Visible Difference, which is a skincare product. So I would take that take the label off, dissolve the growth factor in it, and give it to uh, new new patients as a gratis, just as a gift, as a way to sort of market. And it just so happened that one of those patients was a friend of a friend of the man that ran all the Neiman Marcus stores, uh, Bert Tansky in those days. And he said, if we would make it commercially, uh, he would put it in his stores. So we did, and he did. And uh, this is actually our 25th year. It's hard to believe we're having our silver anniversary. We launched with a single product called Moisturizing Renewal Cream in 1997 in all the Neiman Marcus stores. And we've grown slowly ever since. We're, we're at Saks Fifth Avenue, Bergdorf Goodman. Um, we're in you know Canada, the US, Europe, Asia, Australia. Um, we're not in South America, but we, you know, we've grown slowly, but it's become a real company. Um, and, you know, I sold it, I bought it back. So all the different business aspects that happened, uh, I knew nothing about any of this. Um, I did fail to add, add one of the very first things I did when I decided to make it commercially and Neiman's said that we could, that they would take it. I went to a regulatory lawyer in uh, Washington, DC, who specialized in cosmetic regulatory issues. And I said, can I do this? Can I put a growth factor in cosmetics? But what's so interesting, there's very little FDA input into cosmetics. That's why there's so much money in it. It takes so much money. I never wanted it to be a drug because first of all, I could never have afforded that. And I would have had to raise way too much money. Um, but cosmetics, as long as the ingredients, you can basically put anything in cosmetics as long as they're not toxic, they're not allergenic, but the key is the claims you make. But, and I learned all of this, I didn't know any of this. Um, you can't make a drug claim. You have to be very careful in marketing the way things are worded. So um, we did that and then over the years, I've stayed with the company all these years. Um, I'm still the founder and I still travel around. Uh, I was just in California last week at some Neiman Marcus stores. I'll go to London. We sell at Harrods there. I'm going there in June. Um, of course, for a couple of years, we depended only on the internet because the brick and mortar was, was pretty much closed everywhere. China is a big um, customer of ours. So that's kind of a overview of how I used to give this talk called cures to cosmetics and that's a little trite but it's true I mean when you think about it you know this was a concept taken from the bedside and you through many I mean I've condensed the story there's a lot of twists and turns blind alleys mistakes along the way but basically the arc that I you know just told you is the way we got there and then brought it um, to the commercial um, 
arena. But I do think um, anybody that has an idea or an entrepreneurial idea, um, there's no set way to do it. And, you know, people often ask me um, what my advice is. And I usually just say, you know, first of all, you have to have a fire in the belly and it's not for faint of heart. Uh, you know, not everybody's cut out to be an entrepreneur and it, you have to be willing to take risks and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, you know, maybe it's not in your blood to do that. And then just, you can't take no for an answer because there are a lot of uh, naysayers along the way. And, uh, but, you know, I've had two careers, one in medicine and one in business, and it's been a great run. You know, I always say when I sort of tell this story, life gives you twists and turns. You never quite know what's going to, I mean, I certainly never set out to have a skincare business, but life just took twists and turns along the way. And I ended up here and I do really enjoy the business. And um, I mean, I have no plans of retiring. You can probably do the math. I am not young, but I still very much enjoy working. And I think as long as I feel like I have something to offer, I'll continue to do it. But medicine was great, plastic surgery specifically. And I think plastic surgery gets a little bit of a bad rap because it seems to be so heavily weighted towards cosmetic and it is, but that gets all the press today. But, you know, we're talking about singer, single payer, which obviously is the way to go. And when I was still practicing, we're all, we all had to fight to be reimbursed, but plastic surgery even over and above other specialties because we have the uh, sort of the, the idea that we have all this private pay and it's easier to uh, make a living. And in a certain case, that's true, but we also do a lot of things that are not pretty surgery, I call it, you know, reconstructive procedures, um, free flaps, hand, infected, um, cardiac wounds, all kinds of things, maxillofacial surgery. And in fact, plastic surgery grew as a specialty out of injuries from World War I. So it's always contributed a great deal to that sort of thing. I might add, um, one thing I, I was thinking about when I was gonna uh, talk about this, I, I did get, back when I was in the lab with Dr. Polk, I did get an army grant, which, um, you know, um, supported, the research and it was for a million dollars and back that's still a huge amount of money back then it was a whole lot of money but it was from the army and um, when desert storm or one of those things happened i got a call late one night from uh, admiral crow crow who actually is from lagrange kentucky which is where i grew up i didn't know that at the time but they knew since they had funded the research he was he was retired joint chief of staff then. And they thought there was gonna be all this chemical warfare in Desert Storm and they wanted to be prepared for it. And they knew about our research. So they wanted to have, it. we never did anything, nothing ever happened, but he wanted to make sure it could be available because at that time we were just to treat burns, we were dissolving the growth factor in sylvidine, which is a common topical antibiotic for burn wounds. But it's been a very interesting life and I've enjoyed every minute of it. And I'm really uh, honored to be able to talk to you all today. And thank you, uh, Mike, Gene, and Mark, for, for having me on. Well, great. That's a great summary. Uh, now, you, Greg, you wrote a book somewhere along the way. Maybe you could make a comment about that before I let Gene fire the next round across your bow. 
I did. I wrote a book. Uh, it was called About Face. It was just about, you know, skincare, healthcare, uh, how to be healthy, how to look your best, sort of do everything in moderation, low glycemic index uh, diet. Um, I think, you know, the thrust was, and it's been several years, that, um, you know, the most important thing about looking good is being as happy as you can be and being um, as centered as you can be. And that's not always easy in this world today, but that was the basis of it. Yeah. Great, Gene. Uh, I was amazed by your, your comments about how you got where you are. And it's uh, fascinating. I didn't know some of that. Uh, how did you transition from research of, and the university and into private business. And uh, how were you able to get the patent uh, where other people didn't? And how do you distinguish between the university's uh, ownership, your ownership and private business ownership? Uh, how does That's, all that work? Sure. Well, you know, that arc was long. So a lot of that was done. Um, the patent, it's interesting. Epidermal growth factor was in the realm. So it was in, in and of itself was not patentable. So in order to get the patent, you, it had to be combined with other growth factors, whether it was um, epidermal growth factor, fibroblast growth factor, epidermal growth factor, platelet-derived growth factor. So that was the way, the so it wasn't just for uh, epidermal growth factor. And the university, you know, by the time I, I paid for the patent myself, I was already um, sort of transitioning out of the university. And what I've learned in the beauty industry, you know, I was a doctor, so you know how we are. We think that you have to do prospective randomized studies and have statistical T values for everything. But the beauty industry is very loose. That, you know, I was coming from a medical perspective and I felt like I needed to have a patent. But in reality, cosmetic patents, which this is considered, are very weak and people can get around them and it costs a lot of money. And I, if I had it to do over again, I wouldn't do it. Um, the university, it's interesting. They, by the time the product was sort of commercially available, I was already out of the university. So they obviously kept the million dollars, which, um, you know, I didn't, um, if you if you're doing research and you're raising money, a lot of times there's a big lag between. Luckily, Dr. Polk had enough funds to pay me a small salary and do the research, but the money from my grant didn't come till it was almost all over. But it certainly paid for everything by the time uh, it came in. And as far as ownership, there was never you know we never had issues about that. Um, can't really say. Well, Greg, let's uh, let's go back to the basics. One of the things, uh, if you know, for our listeners who are not medical, um, uh, if you could maybe kind of discuss the basics or the fundamentals of, uh, you know, just how you go about putting a research project together, how you get it going, 
um, uh, you know, from an intellectual standpoint, I can talk about the funding later. You've already mentioned that, but just how do you, you know, you got an idea and then say you, you got to figure out how, or, or, or question how, how are you going to get to the point where you have some idea what the answer of the question is? Right. Well, the very first question we, I had in the research project was, could you, and you know, I'm going to talk about animal research because obviously we did it. People are very, this was 25 years ago, 30 years ago now. People um, don't like that today, but you still have to do it to especially drug companies and that sort of thing. And the first thing was proof of principle. You know, we sort of had this rumor that epidermal growth factor probably promoted wound healing. The very first studies, and I might add that Rita Montalcini and Stanley Cohen, who discovered the growth factor in 1960, ultimately after us and others started publishing after biotechnology came along, won the Nobel Prize for that discovery. And they had done some very crude experiments they had ground up salivary glands and then injected them into newborn mice. And they found that it made their eyes open quicker, their teeth erupt uh, more quickly than not. These are all ectodermal or skin related uh, phenomenon. So they felt like, and they also, if they inhibited, um, they wounded the backs of mice and didn't let them lick their wounds because EGF is in high concentrations in the saliva that they would heal more slowly. So just very crude experiments like that in 1960. So there was this intimation that indeed EGF did make wounds heal faster, but it was really never proven. Um, so we had the, the first thing is proof principle, which uh, was to find a, a, a laboratory model that, that could do that. And I actually went to Pittsburgh. There was a dermatologist there whose name I've forgotten. Uh, who had a really nice mini pig model, uh, wounding model on a way to show wound healing and whether you could accelerate wound healing or not. So that was really the first thing, proof of principle. Did indeed, you know, epidermal growth factor have the potential to make at least uh, superficial wounds heal more quickly. And then from there, once you see that, then you can elaborate more and, um, design experiments or even clinical studies that uh, take advantage of that. But proof of principle, I think is the most important thing. If you have an idea, then you have to prove that. And I know you've talked about this in, in your, your introductory remarks, but just give us a sense of the, the steps that you went through making the decision that you were going to add this uh, epidermal growth factor to whatever the other the Neiman Marcus or, or I can't remember uh -huh. stuff. and then and, and you know turn that turn the turn that into a, a a product sure well we knew that it made that it made secondary wounds second degree wounds heal faster that's what we showed in the clinical studies at uh, Vanderbilt and Emory and that principle, we know that skin cells have a receptor for the growth factor on them. We also know that cell renewal 
or cell turnover slows with age. You know, the basal metabolic rate slows with age. It takes fewer calories to keep you alive at 60 than it did at 20. And that's why most people slowly gain weight over a lifetime. But so everything tends to slow, cell renewal slows. So I had the idea, and that's probably the, really the only original idea I had through all this, all the other stuff was historical, that um, if we put the growth factor in a skincare vehicle, um, could it, first of all, survive? And could it, because it's a very large molecule, have any effect on the cells that divide in the skin? And that was not a given. I didn't know if that were the case. And we did do studies before we actually did the clinical study um, to show that we did radioactive tagged iodine studies to show whether or not the growth factor, even though it's so big, could get to the, the cells that divide. And sure enough, it did. And the only way we didn't have a lot of money and the only way we postulate that's true because it's too big to really get through the skin was that there's enough microtrauma in the skin in daily living to let it get to the cells it needs to get to. So then I designed a clinical study and human volunteers, there's still a lot of people walking around Louisville that have little biopsies on their forearms where we did that. You know, people in my office, nurses, all of that. And they would serve as their own control. One side would get a, a blinded um, cream vehicle with the growth factor. The other would just get the cream vehicle alone for 60 days, twice a day. And then we biopsy those. And there was a woman at, um, Norton did flow cytometry, which you could separate the epidermis from the dermis. You could do flow cytometry on the epidermal cells and measure rate of cell division. And so that's how we were able to show that indeed you could increase, even with that big molecule, um, renewal, skin renewal in aging skin. And that's how I got the patent. So, you know, every, every case is going to be different, um, whatever anybody if you know as, a, as an entrepreneur because there is you know I, there is no real um paint by number way to do it i don't think or at least you know looking at it now from you know the retrospectively it, it just kind of evolves well i you know i think it's interesting for our uh, a, a non-medical listener to understand how uh, this process of of evaluation, uh, you know, the you know the the sort of randomized control trial of the left arm versus the right arm. I mean, th that's important because that's the way a lot of research gets done, and 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 you know, and it's a very basic prospect, and you know, there's so much. Um, anti-science out there today that it's nice to know that how that to, to have the details of how that process worked in this particular case i uh read that your most popular product is the moisturizing renewal cream is still sell number one why is it so popular and uh why does it work so well well uh, I'll send you some, Gene. Okay. <laughs> I'll send you all some. After this is over, I'll send everybody some. Um, so you can either use it yourselves or give it to your wives. Um, uh, can I use it with a beard? <laughs> well, you may have to 
We may have to give it to Susan, I guess. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> She'll probably appreciate it more. Um, <laughs> you know, um, well, it's an interesting, because, um, you know, to go from medicine to the beauty industry is a real shift of consciousness because it was very difficult. Dr. Rudder was who founded Chiron was my original partner in Revive, and he's obviously a basic scientist, you know, PhD, heavily, heavily. I mean, they they discovered uh, hepatitis C, which, as you know, was a holy grail in medicine. So very steep in uh, basic science. So it was very hard for him to go from medicine to beauty because beauty is um, a lot of uh, marketing and um, I don't want to sound too derogatory, but a lot of smoke and mirrors. It's a little like the movies. Um, but so the reason I'm talking about that, one of the heavy lifters in the moisturizing renewal cream, and the reason it's such a great seller, it has an acid, a glycolic acid in it, which the reason I did that, it helps get rid of the dead stratum corneum, which is the outer layer of skin that sits on the top of it. Allow epidermal growth factor to penetrate more readily to the basal cells. And so most people, if they've never used that product, will see a difference in just a few days. Whereas many of the products we make, um, we have one with keratinocyte growth factor in it that is more for a volume loss thing. Those can take four or five months. This product can, you know, you can see a difference in three or four days. And it is still, it was launched 25 years ago and it's still our number one best-selling product. So it's withstood the test of time. Do all your other products have some type of growth factor in them? Every leave-on product does. You know, we have obviously ancillary products like cleansers, toners, things like that, that um, you don't really leave on. They don't, but most every one of our leave-on products has either and nowadays we the growth we don't really use the full-size growth factor anymore we use the active portion which is the active fragment that binds to the receptor so it's maybe 10 or 12 amino acids instead of 53 or 60 amino acids which uh, makes it first of all more efficient penetrates better and um it, it, it binds to the receptor more readily. So we've evolved in that sense. And we have keratinocyte growth factor and insulin-like growth factor. Insulin-like growth factor is really an unfortunate name, but it's the, it's really the end organ effector of growth hormone. So now Gene tells me that you've got a, a hair restoring process or, or, or product. I didn't know anything about that. Can you, uh, Gene has done his research. You know, if, if my hair starts to fall out, can I rub some of this stuff on my scalp and get it to grow again? Tell me, tell me well, a little bit about that. You may be able to stop it. So when I, I sold the business in 08, Dr. Rudder, who was my partner, said, you know, we're going to have a recession. We had all these people coming out of the woodwork wanting to buy it. I didn't want to sell it, but we sold it. Um, and so I was really unhappy, even though I say, you know, there's nothing it, it, as an entrepreneur, one of the uh, saddest days of my life, it was very bittersweet. The day I sold the, the day I got the money 
you know, I never thought I'd make that much money, but I was also the saddest day of my life because, you know, I was selling my baby. So it was really a conflicted uh, thing to sell the business. Um, but luckily, the recession happened shortly after that. And it, it, he was right. It was a good thing. But in order to sort of be able to continue and work and not be the boss, I had to do something else. So I did. I started a hair care business, which is basically an extension of Revive. It's, it's um, using bioengineered molecules uh, for really the reason was for women because in women, hair loss is just as prevalent. Uh, it's a different hair loss pattern, but it's also a little more devastating than for men. And so I would see so many women in the course of Revive that had thinning hair and they didn't talk about it. So I was able to find, um, actually here in Louisville, I found a molecule the Japanese were making that actually would grow or stimulate hair. It's in the hair follicle lends itself to topical treatment because it won't make a cue ball ball person grow hair, but if somebody's actively thinning, it can stop that and reverse the thinning because what happens halfway down the follicle, there's a nest of stem cells called the bulge and unfortunate name, but that's what it's technically called. And so if you can stimulate the bulge in a thinning follicle, it can stimulate the whole process of hair growth because at any given time in a normal person, about 10% of the follicles are in the resting phase. The other 90% are in the growth phase. But once you start to actively thin, that increases. And so the resting phase normally is about three months. Instead of three months, it can go to years. And once the follicle dies, you can never get it back. But if you can stimulate the follicle during this thinning phase, then you can get it back. So we found a molecule I found a molecule that would stimulate the bulge and bring about the whole cascade of events for hair, hair fiber growth. And it was patented, but there's a, um, it's called Peptides International, which amazingly is here in Louisville. And it was started by one of the guys in uh, organic chemistry on the Belknap campus. I didn't even know this. We did research to find uh, basically a private label biotech company that could make the peptide. But what they did they did the enantiomer, which is the mirror image of the patented molecule so that we could use it. And that's how, that's what the ingredient is. And yeah, I will, it's not a, it's not a magic bullet, but if somebody's actively thinning, it will stop or reverse thinning if, if you're patient. So yeah, there, I'm like, you don't look of, like you have that problem. Huh? No, 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 I don't. I'm getting out of my, my, my comfort zone here, but the, the woman who cuts my hair, we had a conversation about this, the last haircut I got. Because I, I, I know we we're, we're going to have you on, and, and she's telling me that that a lot of a lot of hair a uh, lot is that the the that the, uh, the 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 whatever the hole that the follicle grows out of gets plugged up with something, and a lot of these hair care products unplugs the hole so the hair follicle can grow out now is that is, is yes, that a correct statement true. or is she just blowing smoke out no no is? she's true we have we have three products in this it's called renaissance i mean and you know just because you've done well in one revive did well renaissance has struggled but i haven't really been able to spend a lot of time with it but no shampoo is so important because Renaissance has three pro three products. It has a shampoo, a conditioner, and the serum is the one that stimulates the stem cells. But um, 
you know, you almost have to vacuum the follicle because the follicle, a lot of reasons, the hair fiber starts to slow and, uh, you know, you start to thin, you get sebum buildup, you get desquamated dead cells build up, you get whole product built up. So I don't know, there was a class action suit against a product on QVC a number of years ago. It was this guy promoting dry shampoos, but it made people lose their hair because obviously you have to sort of vacuum out the follicle. So if you don't, then it can strangulate the hair fiber and you start to thin. And she, she's exactly right about that. So uh, should I get the vacuum cleaner we use on the floor with an extension on it? <laughs> you know, rub it along my head after I've taken a shower? Maybe, maybe, maybe. I don't think you're going to have a problem. You look like you got a full head of hair. Yeah, okay. I was just curious. Go ahead, Gene. Uh, have have you used a telomerase in any of your products? Does it have any potential? Well, that's you all have done your homework. That's for sure. We launched a product a few years ago with telomerase in it. And as you know, that's a molecule that gets, it gets a lot of sort of, you know, attention because it's called the fountain of youth molecule and all that. Basically, the reason it gets attention is that the telomeres are on chromosomes and as cells divide, the telomeres are the end of the chromosomes. They tend to fray and uh, wear out. So telomerase repairs those, but it also does something else. It recruits stem cells to convert to whatever um, organ they're in. So things like, um, you know, one of the reasons we as plastic surgeons, when we do these invasive sort of ablative procedures, things like, um, you know, laser resurfacing of the face, dermabrasion of the face, peels of the face, the stem cells, I, I, that's a bad word to use. And I don't use it in the beauty industry. I just call them sentinel cells, but they're basically adult stem cells. I mean, they sit there and wait in anticipation of injury in the course of a lifetime. So, you know, if you get injured, they're going to convert to new cells for the organ they're in. So they don't know that when you do a laser or a peel that that's intentional injury. So all of these sentinel cells will convert in mass to um, new, new skin cells and resurface the surface and give you a improved aesthetics. Well, telomerase can do that without the trauma. So that's why we developed a product with it. But telomerase became so expensive and so hard to get, we had to substitute something else. We still make the product, but we don't put telomerase in it. So, um, but you're right, it, it's a very sort of almost controversial molecule. So do you make all these products here in Louisville or? They're, uh, they're all made in the US. The, the secondary components are, they're mostly made in New York and New Jersey, meaning the goop. Um, but the boxes, the jars and all that from all over the world, most of the components, the jars and the bottles and stuff come from Asia, but the assembly and the creams themselves are, are made in the U.S. Yeah. Now, Greg, um, did, did you, it, it, when you, in this process of transitioning from a research project to a business, um, did you encounter uh, conflicts of interest? Uh, were there issues? I mean, I'm, I'm, this is not something I have had any experience with. So I'm, 
I am I speaking from a position of ignorance and but I, I just it's one of those issues that you always wonder about because you've got one one set of circumstances where you're doing this research project and then you have another set of circumstance where you've <clears throat> got this entrepreneurial activity that's the result of the first process so uh there may not have been any but i i just kind of curious to know how what you encountered making that transition from you that know, not not per se but i will tell you and you all are doctors you know um I intentionally didn't put my name on it. Uh, and I think I'm so glad I didn't. You know, there are a lot of in the industry, quote, unquote, doctor brands. Um, and I just didn't want, um, you know, in medicine, it may seem a little, what's the right word, um, superfluous or, you know, the beauty. First of all, plastic surgeon, we, we're a little bit um, prejudiced against anyway, but you know that because we do things that aren't really medically necessary a lot of times, especially the aesthetic procedures. So put on top of that, the beauty industry. So I'm, I intentionally never, that's not really a conflict of interest, but it's sort of a, I guess maybe an ethical conflict. I'm not sure. Uh, I didn't want my name on the like Dr. Brown's cream or what, but um, you know, there really wasn't um, a true like legal or I never really had a real conflict of interest that I knew of. How about the the uh, administrative process of, of setting up a business? <laughs> well, you know, a little bit about <clears throat> getting a patent and then which you did at the time, but you said, I think you said earlier, you, you probably wouldn't do that now, but right. uh, you know, it's, it's just not, this stuff doesn't happen. I mean, you've got, no. there's a lot of pieces you've got to put together to, right. to like you just said, you've got to get boxes from somewhere and jars and whatever <laughs> right. else. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, it was very, very mom and pop. I mean, for the first 10 years, I ran it out of my practice. The woman that ran my practice ran the business. So in that sense, um, you know, I don't recommend it, but when the funds are so limited, that's kind of, you kind of do what you have to do. Uh, I couldn't really afford a corporate staff or anything like that. So um, we did, we just kind of, everybody sort of answered the phone or, and you know, there was, People just did what they had to do. Uh, and I, and it was still all, by that time I was in private practice out of the university, but it was still uh, all pretty much just by the bootstraps. And it really didn't get terribly professional until I stopped practicing medicine in um, 04, 05. And once I did that, then it really got, and we moved out of the medical center. I got offices downtown then it really sort of started to grow. But it's hard, you know, I will say it's very hard to practice. Medicine is 110% effort. And to try to do something else is really hard. And so um, I think it's difficult to, to do both at the same time. How about advertising? Where did, where did that fit into this process? Again, we, you know, did what we could. This was we started before there was e-commerce, before there was social media. Um, we would advertise as we could with Neiman Marcus, but a page in the Neiman Marcus book is, you know, 
$45,000, one page. So it had to be very uh, judicious and we didn't do a lot. It was mostly word of mouth, me going to stores, seeing clients, um, and is a little bit of PR, but mostly um, just word of mouth. And it, it you know, it, people think, well, this is a way to get rich easy. It, it is not, um, it's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of risk involved. Um, you know, and again, I don't recommend it to anybody unless you really have a passion to do something because there is so much. I think probably if I'd known how hard it was and um, I probably still would have done it, but it was much harder than I ever expected. Did you do most of the administrative parts yourself or you, you hired someone to do that? I fortunately was very blessed. I had a woman who has just extreme amount of common sense and people skills that ran my practice. And she really built the, I mean, I could never have done it. She ran the business because I was still operating and everything. I couldn't really run the business. I could do occasional calls. I could do occasional trips to Neiman Marcus, but by and large, Lynn did all of the uh, heavy lifting and, you know, dealt with the buyers at the department stores and all the promotional stuff, plus run my practice. So I just was lucky that way because um, I couldn't have afforded to hire, you know, a separate administrator. Did she, uh, was she also in charge of the production and the people who made this, uh, your product? Well, I had a second person that <laughs> she still works for me that, um, was in charge of, um, you know, she was the receptionist and all of that. Lynn was the office administrator. Diane was the receptionist. And she sort of evolved into product development, packaging, um, you know, all of that stuff. So it sort of sorted it out. But you have to remember, we were very small then. We probably only had four or five products. And then um, we didn't really grow... I sold the business to um, these wealthy families in, that own uh, Amway, actually, um, in um, Michigan in 08. And, but we moved the offices to New York. Um, I mean, they really tried to run the business, but they didn't do a great job. They bought myself and Laura Mercier, which is a color brand. And we were two together. And so the, both brands didn't do well. Eventually, though, it was sold to Shiseido, which is a big Japanese cosmetic company. They didn't do well with them. And then about five years ago, myself and a few other people bought it back. And we've been running it ever since. So, I mean, those are all interesting things for me to go through with investment banks and all of that. I mean, I've never been exposed to stuff like that. So I've learned a lot over the course of... Um, those years and you know as a well you all know we're doc we're not trained in business so it, it's all the you know trial and error and mistakes yeah now who who does all that administrative stuff now you know you had two people doing it way back when but and now you've got uh, a, you know a lot well, more. we have a big corporate staff now we have offices in new york and we probably have um you know, 30 corporate employees plus a sales force. So it's much bigger now. And we have a CEO. I'm not the CEO. We have a CFO. We have, you know, product development. So it's a much bigger company now than it, you know, 
when I was in charge. <clears throat> now, Greg, we're getting down toward the end here. Um, one of the things that we had talked about um, uh, earlier, and um, uh, I think I mentioned to you the other day, uh, yes, yeah, we, we all represent um, a local group, Kentuckians for Single Payer, and they sponsor this radio program. And, um, and I, I, I just kind of like to hear your views about uh, the current state. I know you've been out of practice for a long time, and Gene and I have too, but not, not, <laughs> not as long as you have. And, um, you know, where we go from here with this disastrous healthcare industry focused on profit as opposed to a healthcare system focused on patient care, uh, who knows, um, with the amount of ideological uh, differences that exist in the political ruling classes, I, I don't see any changes coming anytime soon, but I'd kind of like to hear your views about, you know, some of the the prospect for change at some point in time, one, a public option, which would be a form of insurance uh, run by the, the, the central government uh, as, a, uh, as a challenge or as a competitor to the for-profit insurance companies or a system like they have in Canada, which is Medicare for all. So everybody in the country would be um, would be eligible for the same kind of coverage as we get from Medicare. And Mark just gave me the three finger <laughs> sign. <laughs> we got three minutes left. <laughs> okay, well, I'll be quick. You know, you're right. I, but I have had two elderly parents that I've, they've since, you know, died, but they, I had to go through the system with them. And I think, you know, somebody that doesn't have sort of a healthcare advocate and has an illness and has to wade through all that, at least I knew people and I knew how the system sort of worked. And I certainly knew how hospitals and medicine work. To get through that without that, it would just be daunting. And it shouldn't be like that. You know, uh, I travel to the UK a lot. We sell in Canada at Holt Renfrew. I go there. And, you know, these countries that we're supposed to be the leader in the world of, you know, technology and enlightenment and sophistication. I think we've backslid a good bit, but, you know, Scandinavia, Australia, New Zealand, all, all of these countries have single payer or some form of single payer system. And I just think, I don't, I agree with you. We should have that, but how we're ever going to get there. And, you know, when you have a CEO of a healthcare company that makes 20, $25 million a year, there's something really wrong with that. Oh, absolutely. Well, listen, we're, we're about the end. Uh, uh, Greg, thank you very much. This has thank really you. been interesting. I've learned a lot. Um, yeah, Gene and I are looking forward to getting some of that. I'm interested to see what happens when Gene puts Revive on his beard. <laughs> so, Mike, will you send me everybody's address and I'll send you probably. No, I'm serious. I will. Yeah, I will. I will. Greg, again, right. thanks again. You're great. I Thank have you. one question. How long will it take me to look younger? <laughs> oh, you're going to be carded the next time you go in. <laughs> All right, guys. It's a pleasure. Right. Bye. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.
Perfect. Uh, Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare works to stop the Wall Street takeover of Medicare, and we oppose the privatization of the VA system. Learn more about us at kyhealthcare.org, kyhealthcare.org. For Single Payer Radio, I'm Mark McKinley. Thanks for listening.